0: You should have an outline as well in your sheets. I hope that's helpful as we go through uh, this uh, initial kind of passage of Song of Songs. Now, I have to admit, as we begin, I don't think I've ever started a sermon series with such eager anticipation, not from myself, but from everyone else. Um, but uh, I think that is right. Why don't you just turn out your eyes down to chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see, I think, probably why. This is Solomon's Song of Songs. Now, essentially what that phrase means is it's the superlative song. It's like God is sometimes described in the Bible that he's the Lord of Lords, he's the King of Kings. This is the song above all songs in Solomon's uh, kind of uh, collection. Solomon's actually unlikely the author, like other wisdom books, he's more like the collector perhaps of of this uh, uh, collection of songs. So here we are, Uh, we're in Song of Songs, I can't quite believe we're here. Um, Some of you are genuinely excited about what uh, we might read here. Uh, Some of you may have concerns about what you might hear. And I'm sure many of you just pity me right now uh, for actually trying to teach this. We have five weeks, though, as we're going through this uh, quite amazing song, hopefully unpacking its treasures for us today. Now, I'm going to go very quickly Four reasons I think we should teach Uh, This book. Four reasons, very quickly. Firstly, it's in the Bible. Uh, And we must be careful, we must be sensitive, given the language. I think some of you have read read ahead and you kind of know what's happening and what's coming. We've got to be sensitive and careful. But we mustn't be ashamed because this Bible speaks of erotic things and physical intimacy. God has placed it here for us. And we must remember, for example, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, yes, including this... All scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's the first point. Second point, uh, we're, we're created as physically intimate beings. We all have uh, physical intimate longings for physical intimacy, and so it's wonderful, isn't it, that God, therefore, speaks... Into that area of our lives, we're not left around in the dark, not sure what to do, how to respond, and so on to those uh, longings. Thirdly, we do feel a great pressure, don't we, in a very over culture? The pressures, of course, are different for us today than they were when this was written and in previous generations. But God, in His kindness, again helps us to use the beautiful gifts for our good and pleasure. And not to squander them, as so many sadly do. Fourth reason uh, we should be looking at this book, I believe. Uh, I think because we ought to be positive about sex and intimacy as Christians. Historically, I think Christians have been heard to be very prudish, embarrassed, even ashamed about matters of sex and intimacy. God here provides, though, for us an erotic love poem where intimacy and sex are celebrated in their right context. And this is a positive and a very beautiful message that our culture so desperately needs to hear. There's four reasons why I think we should teach uh, Song of Songs. As Christians, I'm sure we all long to honour God with our whole lives. That includes physical uh, intimacy and sex. Uh, this is difficult though, isn't it? And we need to help from God to know what real love, true intimacy looks like, what God has ordained it to be in his good plans for us. As I put on a kind of title, which is... Sorry for the sun coming through there. Um, as I put on the title for, for this uh, uh, on the kind of social media stuff, you know, this is revolutionary stuff in the world that we know. In what we see all around us, this is so opposed. What, what, what we're seeing in Song of Songs is so opposed to what is going out going on out there in London. Three very quick, brief issues uh, that I think I probably should raise as we begin a series uh, like this, looking at this kind of literature. Uh, three issues uh, in teaching uh, this book before we dive into the passage. Firstly, there's an issue of interpretation. And this has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries, particularly with this book. There's been all sorts of debates how you interpret this book. Now, some just say it's only about romantic love. That's the obvious and clear reading as you, as you dive into the text. Now, some think that on the opposite side, they're a bit slightly embarrassed by that, and therefore they've said it's just an allegory. That is, a, it's, a, it's a thin veil is placed in a kind of story fashion uh, so that uh, the writer and the reader, they kind of know what's being talked about, but it's not what's been written here like Pilgrim's Progress, for example, where you have characters like Faithful and Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's an allegory. It's pointing to something else. It's a thin veil over what the true meaning is. Some people say it's an allegory. However, I think most people, and I think this is where we'll probably land, um, think the obvious reading is it's a a story about erotic love. But because love and marriage have been given as a picture uh, of the marriage between Christ the Bride and his church sorry, Christ and the Pride His Church, many have therefore legitimately looked at this book and read it as both a love poem that we ought to learn uh, from between a man and a woman, but one also that points to the intimate love between Christ and His Church. Second uh, issue is language. Some of you have already read through it. Some of you have already come to me, for example, at prayer meeting on Tuesday, and went, whoa, this is what we're teaching, wow. You know, and uh, we've seen it. It's graphic at times, but we must be very, very thankful, I think, that it, although it's written um, with graphic language, it's talking about the most erotic things, if you like, in the most restrained language that is possible, using poetry. And God is very kind in that. You'll know what's been spoken of when you get to various poetic kind of images. I don't need to be, we don't need to be smutty like people around us. We don't need to use explicit language as some preachers have in kind of recent history. I think that is totally unnecessary and it shows a lack of compassion to those listening and a lack of wisdom too. So that's an issue of language. Thirdly, an issue of application. Applying this book is always difficult, given the congregation here and, to be honest, anywhere. Uh, some want a romantic relationship and don't have one. Some are in a ro- romantic relationship that, are, uh, that is frustrating. Uh, some are in romantic relationships that they should not be in. Uh, that is, anything outside of a biblical marriage. Added to that, these are feelings that we will all have, and they're probably the most intense and regular feelings that we will ever feel. Intense feelings of romantic longing, but also intense feelings of the, the, the sort of the counter side of that of, of intense loneliness and disappointment. But here what we see is God and in his infinite kindness again helps us to know what to do with those feelings. Now before I read a few verses, uh, I want you to note, if you can, just look down at the, the page 680 there, you'll see um, you'll see the verses as written before, but there's various titles above and our translation has been helpful in that because it, it points out who is speaking at particular times we see he and she, the, uh, the the man and the woman there. But also, you sometimes get the woman's friends kind of just joining in. They're kind of listening in as well. And what we'll see in this passage is a uh, today is a is longing, particularly as as we start this uh, this uh, poem here, this uh, Song of Songs. Uh, we see anticipation and longing. The the man and the woman haven't got together at this point but you'll see very, very quickly what she wants and what she anticipates. And what we're looking at today, in a sense, acts like the prologue does of a play or an opera or something like that. It's an introduction. Like any good love song, uh, the first verse is usually not kind of in the present. It's it's kind of anticipating what will be. Ed Sheeran, you know, is some... I'm not going to sing this because it would be absolutely awful, wouldn't it? But, you know... Darling, I will be loving you till we're 17. 17. you knew it there we will we Now we're not going to sing it together, but it's an anticipation of what we'll be, and that's what we've got in this uh, today. It teaches us, I think, what we need to do to create and sustain romantic intimacy. But as we'll see at the end, there is warning too. Oh you'll see where we're going on the outline. Do cast your eyes down there. But as we go through, think about it. It is wisdom to help us to create and sustain romantic intimacy. One last point before we begin. I think uh, we all have to acknowledge, and we'll do this more at the end, Uh, we've probably, many of us will have failed in this area. Many of us are failing in this area. Let us all come before this humbly, that we might learn and that we might be better uh, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves for the glory of God. Firstly, it begins, though, with delight in the other person. Oh, wait, why don't you look down at verse 2. And here we see the woman anticipating his kisses. Here we go, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, if you were left there, it would be as you see it everywhere else, in the films and magazines. But the kiss, you see, it's interesting, it's not the real goal, is it? Uh, she wants the delight and the pleasure that comes from his love. Look at it. For uh, your love is more delightful than wine. She longs essentially for his affection, his love. Verse 3. Your name is like perfume poured out. Now, it's poetry, isn't it? But we get it. We understand what's been talking about. Even the sound of his name to this woman uh, kind of leaves her, you know, just... It, it, just so excited. She wants him. He's in her heart and mind. And she's totally smitten. And, and right from the outset, you've got to go, there's nothing wrong with this. This is great. True love and romance uh, 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 is for pleasure and delight. But the pleasure and delight is not based on the physical activity here. The, the root of romance is not to be, the, the root of our love must not be based on the physical but rather the person, the name, the character here. Uh, of course, uh, biblically, uh, the name of someone is always pointing to who they are, their character, their godly attributes. And it's that delight and pleasure in the other person that gives rise to the physical anticipation, not the other way around. On well, verse two, it's clear, she, she wants his kisses. Verse 4, look, she wants to run away with him there. But why does she want this? It's because she delights in him as a person, in his name, in who he is. And if we lose delight in the person, we lose all of this romantic anticipation. Because you don't want to be with anyone, do you, who you do not delight in. If you don't delight in someone, you can find their breathing intensely annoying, can't you? I mean, anything, whatever they do, it's just oh go 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 away. If you're not delighting in that person, if you do delight in someone, well, as soon as they walk in the room, everything's better, isn't it? If we start or root our relationships on the physical, we miss out so terribly. Uh, there's phrases that kind of fly around at the moment. We are friends with benefits. So that's no benefit at all. Because it reduces the beautiful, exciting and delightful to a simple, animalistic, short-lived, carnal moment. Don't base a relationship on the physical because you are ignoring everything that makes it meaningful, as we see here. A moment of physical excitement, uh, if it's only physical, will end up, and I guess many of us will know this, it ends up as totally dissatisfying and also destructive. And some of you will know that and be experiencing that. And don't ignore what makes love and intimacy so beautiful. The woman here tells us uh, she wants the physical romance. She's, She's not embarrassed by that, but only because she delights in who he is. She delights in his name, in the thought of him. And therefore we must be careful. We have to delight in more than the physical nature of the other person. If we only care about how they look, we'll actually end up harming them even if we don't intend to. Because we're just imparting onto them what matters to us more, what matters most in the relationship. We're feeding their insecurities. Think about the future too. What if you, you know, if you just base everything on the physical? Well, you know, a few years down the line, a few extra pounds on the tummy, whatever it is, you get ill, you have babies, you know, all these normal things. If it's all about the physical you're going to be in serious trouble. We must delight in the person because it doesn't matter what you go through with them then because if the person is there, the romance and the intimacy is there too. Yes, maybe in very different ways, but it's still there. First point then. Second point, uh, accept ourselves before we give ourselves. Let's read through from verse uh, verse 5. Dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem, Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tents' curtains of Solomon. Do not, stare, do not stare at me because I am dark, but because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside your, the flocks of your friends?' The interesting thing here is that the woman is facing a difficulty in terms of acceptance, but also in terms of access as well. She is not what her culture understands to be beautiful. She is dark, and she makes a number of comments about that. She is dark-skinned. And now commentators kind of argue about this, I think primarily because of where they've been written. Uh, Either it's because of her race... Or given the context, and more likely because of what she says in verse 6, I think because she is a worker. She is someone who works outside, and therefore, in that very hot climate, her skin is dark from working under the sun all of her life. Now, of course, in those times, you've got to understand that if you were pale-skinned and slightly voluptuous, that was the thing. You've been on the cover of Vogue if you were like that. But here we go, we get verse 5. The word yet there in verse 5 is striking, isn't it? She is dark, yet lovely. But what we see here, it therefore, is a beautiful, self-confident woman who accepts herself. And you have to say that is really attractive. I mean, think about what you do when the culture around you doesn't value you as beautiful. And again, it doesn't have to be skin colour, which it is here in verse 5. It could be your shape, it could be your height, your weight, your hair colour, whatever it may be. What if culture keeps shouting at you, you are not beautiful. I'm not just speaking to the women here, it's for everyone. Well, look at this woman. Look what she does. She's confident and celebrates her looks, ignoring the magazines and the internet and all the world around her. And she says her beauty is worthy of the king's inner chamber, like uh, the tent curtains of Solomon. Yes, they would have been very dark, but they would have been ornate, they would have been beautiful, stunning to the eye. And it's interesting, isn't it, that her self-acceptance and her self-confidence motivates her to anticipate romance in verse 7. But we must note here, she's not desperate. And though desperation can actually look very similar to self-confidence and self-acceptance, the difference is simple because desperation, I don't know if you've ever seen it, I'm sure you have, whether it's you or other people around you, desperation always ends up as wild and kind of quite destructive, doesn't it? While self-acceptance is controlled and focused. And that's what we see in the woman here. Uh, She is focused only on the one that she loves. And she rejects all others. Not, as you see, like the comment in verse 7, not like the veiled women. Now, that is simply a phrase too. Veiled women were those who went about and, and sold their bodies. Prostitutes. They wore veils. She's not going to give herself away to anyone else. She accepts herself, and that has given her confidence to seek only the one that she loves. She's not desperate at all. See, desperate people throw themselves at anyone, whether they're married or not, at anyone who will have them. Self confident people have the ability to wait, they have a dignity about them. Desperate people get anxious, they just want someone to say, Oh, you do look great. Um, I think you look wonderful and I really want to be with you. They, they, they just need assurance the whole time. Self confident people trust God with what He has given them and what He will give them or will not give them. Oh, desperation often looks very different in men and women. But here we see a woman who is confident and she doesn't want to be around uh, with all the other shepherds who look who like, who like the, a loose woman, like a loose woman would be. Rather, she wants to meet with this man, uh, but on an exclusive basis. She she tries to find out where, where he grazes and where the kind of probably the siesta time will be. She wants to meet with him and him alone. She is confident in her love for him and that she will be a great blessing to him. I wonder, do we accept ourselves as God has made us? Or are we insecure about who we are and how we look that's important we must not neglect uh, to look after ourselves we must be good stewards of all of God's creation Genesis 1 tells us and that includes our bodies but more importantly much more importantly we must remember that God has made us in his image and he has saved us for his glory and whatever you feel like now you are not a mistake third point Give gifts to show we treasure the other person. Verse 9, let's uh, look at that together. Here we have the the man, he gets to speak. He only speaks about a third of the time of the woman. It's interesting that, isn't it? I make no comment (coughs) on that. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Now, we get the man speaking for the first time here, as I said, and at first glance it doesn't go too well, does it? Because he compares this one lady to a horse. Please understand what he's doing, though. It's like a man comparing you to a car, okay? Now, if he compared you to a rusty to, you know, 20-year-old Ford Fiesta, yes, I think you might have something to complain about at that stage. But if he says, my darling, I compare you to a Ferrari, whether you like cars or not women, you've got to work with that and be really satisfied with that. The man here is saying to this woman, you are beautiful and you are strong. He's not not saying you're any old horse here, is he? Look at the horses that he's comparing her to. It's a mare dressed beautifully, pulling Pharaoh's chariot, ornately dressed. Stunning. A horse beyond all horses. In verse 11, now what's he want to do? He wants to give her jewellery that complements her beauty. He's trying to find jewellery that fits her beauty. He isn't trying to make her something else, someone else. Rather, he's trying to say, you are beautiful. Here is jewellery that complements you. And he looks intently at her, probably the most uh, intimate thing that anyone really can do uh, in a kind of non-physical way. Uh, he looks intently, and what's he notice? He notices her cheeks and her, uh, uh, her neck. Later in the book, as we'll get there, he, uh, and they're married, they, they see more, much more, he intently looks on much more intimate parts. But he's observant, and where the world is silent, he compliments her beauty and adorns her beauty with gifts. And in verse 14, uh, the woman uh, speaks and is clear. She wants... One man to be drawn to her. And her gift, if you like, there is is perfume. It's her choice there. She uses it, though, discreetly, not indiscriminately. She wants him to smell her. And so to remember her and delight in her. Smell's an interesting one, isn't it? It's one of those uh, things that can linger in our memories very much. Does a certain smell take you back to a certain place, a certain person? You know, it, it does very quickly, doesn't it? It can remind you of someone. And here we see the man and the woman trying to be particular with their gifts and expressions of love. It's like having pet names for each other if you're uh, kind of married or, or dating someone. Giving particular presents and gifts. However ridiculous they seem to the whole of the world around you, they're your gifts. And that's what you do. They're being here very exclusive and discreet. And by verse 13 and 14, the issue is that her lover has become to her to her. Uh, the perfume imagery kind of moves forward. Now uh, he has become a perfume, if you like, so that she can get his scent, so she can be reminded to him, so she he is close to her. One of our boys, I won't embarrass say which one, uh, likes to spray my wife's perfume on one side of a pillow that he has in his bed, and he sprays my aftershave on one uh, other side. It's ridiculous and it's very expensive waste of. No, I'm not joking. Um, he simply wants to be reminded. And likewise here, she wants a memory of him close to her. And let's not be stoical about that. Uh, it's one of the temptations that you, you can kind of get. With. Christians are often sort of like, oh, we don't want to talk about that kind of stuff, it's, it's too embarrassing, and so on. Uh, but we don't want to veer the other way and become hedonistic, like many of the people in our culture, seeking pleasure and pleasure alone. But there's nothing wrong with enhancing ourselves for our love. But we see the wisdom here is done discreetly and thoughtfully to uh, enhance our anticipation of us. Now what you choose to wear, what you smell like, should be an exciting enticement and anticipation, but for one only. 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 3 shows us that we're not to rely on these outward adornments, the language of 1 Peter 3 is. Uh, your beauty should not come from that but the giving of gifts even if we wear them ourselves as the woman does here with the perfume it can show that we treasure the other person I wonder what, what gift if you're married or you're dating someone, what gift would uniquely say I love you fourthly creatively communicate your exclusive uh, affection we're running through hopefully fairly quickly here now, these, this, uh, as we go on now from verse 15 of chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 6, this may not be the language that you or I may choose, but uh, let's go through it if we can. Verse 15 and 16 are actually just quite basic compliments. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Then she responds, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Now, the woman speaks here for the first time about the, uh, the physical appearance of the man. But it's interesting that she very quickly moves on uh, with an expectation of their fruitfulness. The bed there, the, the verdant uh, bed, verdant, literally the word there is green in the, in the language. Basically, it's not a green bed literally, but it's saying it will have fruitfulness uh, as they kind of get married. Verse 17, the beams of our house are cedars, Our rafters are fur. This is the man responding here. And basically he's saying, hey, you, woman, this is not going to be a short thing. All of those images there, strong, stable, permanent. He's speaking of something will last. And they move on then from basic compliments. You get to chapter 2, verse 1. She, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And she's saying here, there's there's a slight insecurity maybe. And she's saying as she sees herself or as she is known as something very common. Uh, It's a common common, uh, uh, flower, common rose and so on. And men, we need to take note here. I need to take note here. Because if you struggle with compliments, chapter 2, verse 2 is the greatest gift to you, I believe. Look at what she says. She's just said, I'm very basic. I'm pretty much nothing. Look at the genius of this man as he comes back in chapter 2. Verse two. Oh yeah, you're a lily among thorns. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Is my darling among the young women. He's saying, look, the rest of you, all the rest of the women out there, they're thorns comparing to you. You may be a lily, but among thorns. He's creative. And she wants to hear more. It's like one of those questions that if you're ever asked if you're married or, uh, you know, how do I look in this? It's the worst question that a woman can ever ask a man. But look what the man does here in verse 2. He takes it really to the next level, doesn't he? He says, uh, you may be a lily, but it's a, you're amongst It's very creative, and you've got to work out what your lines are here, man. You know, maybe not use this one, maybe you find out your own, you know, and so on. It's not good enough to say, I'm introverted, or British, or shy. And what he is saying here is... You are my exclusive love, and I delight in you alone. And look how she responds. And this should be a lesson to you men, all of us. Verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. I'm not sure we'd use raisins and refresh me with apples, probably a cappuccino or something nowadays. But, you know, she responds again with her exclusive affections, doesn't she? She is totally enamored. Uh, faint with it. Every other man is just a tree. He's an apple tree. Sweet. Will provide protection. Now, you get to verse 6, and I'm not going to be smutty here. You, I'm not going to draw a diagram for you, but you know what she wants. We must creatively communicate that our delight and our love shows our spouses are unique in our eyes. Finally, then, verse 7. Of chapter two, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the doors of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now this appears as a, if you like the chorus, the refrain of this book it appears three times. Um, and I think it is a warning, and you see here that she is now speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, that is to the readers of this poem, that is to you and to I. He speaks under oath, and the charge is here do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. And I think our point is this you cannot flip the switch on and off. If you arouse love, this most powerful, this most beautiful anticipation, you will struggle to sleep, you will struggle to eat, or do anything. Many of you have probably got people in your teams at work who are the most useless if they get into love. It's just, what's happened to you? We know the reality. Do not pursue love until it's proper time. Do not flirt with romance and sex. Sexy is not something, for example, we should ever encourage in our kids, or to be honest, and I don't want to be peer, totally privileged here, if you're single, you know, sexy and hot are not adjectives to be used. They're only to be used between husband and wife. It's not cute if your son and your daughter thinks about having relationships very young. Yes, we should encourage good friendships, good communication with both sexes. But why put their hearts through an absolute mangle unless you think that they are ready for marriage? We must be really, really careful, for example, about social media for our kids all of us to be honest whether we're single we've got children or whoever we are why would you give your kid a smartphone or social media unless you had it absolutely tightly monitored my kids can't do anything on their phones without me knowing about it why because i don't want them to be anticipating or awakening anything like this it's so painful now you're probably thinking i've gone completely mad at this point let me, I just, I've got a quote here. I think it was quite helpful. Um, uh, I think it just kind of points out where, where the warnings need to be. It said this, God applauds your purity and your modesty, but the world applauds your nudity and looseness. The world says sexy is innocent and fun, and God says it's unclean outside of marriage. The world says only skinny tan women are pretty. God says that every woman of every shape and every size is beautiful. God does not think immodesty is innocent. I think the warnings are there, aren't they? We must not awaken. To the Christian singles, uh, I know this, uh, in a sense, is quite hard, isn't it? As you go through uh, a passage like this, you think, oh, if only... The warning's there, isn't it? Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Brothers and sisters, be confident in who you are in Christ. You are utterly beautiful to him and know his good plan for you and that may be singleness, it may be marriage. Don't be desperate. Trust God and his beautiful ways. Do not squander his gifts. Focus on the beautiful, intimate friendships that you have and enjoy appropriate intimacy there. I'd love to talk more about friendships and I think I probably need to at time because... We're not very good at it. There's a, this is pretty revolutionary stuff because as Christians, we should want to save all intimacy, emotional and physical, until the commitments are there in place. And to that extent, I think we need to be very careful about the compliments we make and even be careful about using the word love before marriage. That phrase, I love you, is there for one reason and there for one reason alone. It is to awaken and arouse love. But if the only context of that is marriage and leading to marriage, the anticipation of which we see here, I think we need to be very careful when and how we use that phrase. For marriage, there, there are things we are to do in marriage. I'm sure many of us are feeling the weight of this now. We must not show this. Love to anyone outside of our marriages, we must protect and be the apple tree that we see of the man here. But as we close, I want to recognise that many of us, uh, some of us, may be feeling guilty before God right now, maybe guilty before our spouses, and therefore we must, if you like, point all of us to the gospel. If we have awaken, awakened love before its time, we need to know the forgiveness and the security that comes. In the gospel if we have failed in this area we again need the gospel don't we we need to know that even the worst of the sinners of sinners can be rescued and the most difficult of marriages can be revived we all must know that Jesus died for our romantic and our sexual sins and he knows all of our struggles He died for our sins. He is able to give life and to restore us to intimate and beautiful relationships that we have been created to enjoy. I'm aware time is uh, is kind of closing. I'm going to pray. and uh, I was going to open up to questions, but I think it's probably wise that we do questions, um, if you like, one-on-one afterwards. I'll stay around. Of course I'll stay around. Um, uh, But... I'll make myself a, look, we need to ask questions on this subject, I think, as much as we possibly can. Speak to friends about it. um, But let's not leave it here, walk out and go, don't like that, don't want that, and so on. Let's apply God's word to each other. Let's pray it through. I'm going to finish, actually, why don't I read uh, just one verse of a a Christmas carol. I used to sing it as a chorister. Yes, I used to be a chorister. It was bad days. And uh, it's called Jesus